0: welcome to another edition of steve's speed shop brought to you by WarrantyWise. britain's best warranty providers you can get a quote today at warrantywise.co.uk we are also brought to you By Mini Sports. They've been specialising in anything and everything you could possibly imagine and so much more for the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. Their deal is pre enjoyed Harley Davidson Motorcycles. They've been doing it for 35 years. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Now, this show is really about the past, the present, and the future of motoring. I'm going to talk to a couple of authors, but Both of them are so much more than that. Later in the show, I'll be chatting with Peter Grimsdale. He's written a book called High Performance, When Britain Ruled the Roads. It's all about... It's really about the characters who dominated British motor in post-war to about 1970. John Cooper, Colin Chapman, Sir William Lyons. It's a great book. I actually... Got about 20 pages in then then looked Peter up because it was so entertaining. Found out he's also a novelist, a scriptwriter, and a TV executive. But first, I'm going to talk to a chap who's written a book about the future of motoring. He's called John Bentley. He is a TV presenter. You might know him from the Gadget Show here in the UK. He is a columnist and for 10 years, he was my boss because he was the producer of Top Gear when I was there. Uh, and this is my chat with John. So John, most people um, who write about the future of motoring or personal transportation tend to have a real doom and gloom attitude rather than a, an autopia a dystopia you pretty enthusiastic and confident about the future of cars. Uh,
1: yes, indeed. I mean, I, I, partly I wanted to look at the future of cars from a car enthusiast's perspective and in a way which hopefully could address them not as a problem but something that we all enjoy and we all benefit from. And, uh, and that's what I was keen to do, both in the sense of the uh, way they, they were powered, the, uh, their design, the, uh, whether they were going to be autonomous or not, also the role for the car enthusiast motorsport and, of course, vitally important uh, motoring heritage. And one of the chapters that I found most interesting was
0: powered, how they are powered, mm-hmm. and your, um, your approach, which seemed very open to um, a future with multiple ways. There's not just one way. I think a lot of people subscribe to an opinion that it's going to be all hydrogen fuel cells, or it's going to be all electric, or it's going to be all hybrids. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure you will, and feel free to do so. You think that they might all coexist, Yeah.
1: Uh, yes, I think that we're going to have to get used to or enjoy actually a, a, diverse, a diversity of different power sources. I think, um, battery electric cars are going to be an important part of the mix but they're probably slightly less all-encompassing part of the mix than many people think i think hydrogen in the longer term will develop as an alternative fuel source particularly for people who travel on long journeys a lot and don't want all the range anxiety which is still there within, into the foreseeable future with everything electric <laughs> and also i'm not don't think that petrol and diesel is going to go away any any time soon particularly petrol and we may even start to uh, to appreciate diesel again and uh, I know it's you know, the polling diesel gate and so forth, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that world. But nevertheless, the latest diesels really, really are uh, cleaner than the latest petrol cars, and they can do a job almost of cleaning up the air, thanks to all the uh, the filtration and ad uh, blue systems and whatever in them. And uh, the only problem is nobody believes it because, because, of, uh, because of the way they were falsely sold in, in the recent past. But uh, I think, having said that, if they do, and I think they will actually continue to be an important part of the market, nevertheless, I think there's going to have to be a real commitment to uh, enforcing emission standards, which at the moment there isn't. It's almost enforcing emission standards to the same level at which now is suffering from with enforcing the speed limits and so forth. Now,
0: it's interesting you talk about range anxiety. I remember uh, driving from the Ace Cafe in North London, which is a petrol head Mecca, to Dalston in a Nissan Leaf that was... If it had been a human rather than an electric car, it would have been stamping its feet and screaming at me <laughs> because it just kept flashing up that it was completely dead. There was no electricity left in it. And I thought, well, let's just see. And so I drove all that way, and it, it, and it, it never let me down. It, it would frequently um, send me messages that implied that it was about to expire in heavy traffic on on the west way. I was living in London at the time. But even though I initially had range anxieties, you did, I think that most full electric cars are set up to... uh, very much on the side of conservatism when they tell you how much electricity they have left at their disposal. Did you not find that? Uh,
1: well, I don't, think, I don't think I've ever perhaps had the courage to quite test them to that degree, so I always get, I always get serious anxiety when, when they've got 30 miles left or something like that. I think I have, oh, having said that, I was filming with the Leaf once, and... Uh, no, but I, it was still um, it was a case of the nearest thing was uh, the nearest fastish supercharger was eight miles away. and It had eleven or something on the range, and, and I did get there. But I, I've never gone beyond that in exploring the um, the uh, the red light equivalent on the on, on the dashboard.
0: I have a friend who's uh, very much in the engineering business, the old fashioned engineering business, i.e., cutting up metal and shaping it and forming it. And he has, whenever we get onto this subject, he seems obsessed with this idea that. Electric cars should have interchangeable batteries that are swapped at service stations in the
1: same way that you perhaps would do with calor gas, is, is there any possibility that that could happen, John? Do you think? I, I mean, it has been tried. Um, there was an Israeli company that did it uh, with Renault Fluences. Um, the big problem is that the batteries are such a huge proportion of the purchase price of the car that effectively you're almost having an alternative car. It's the economics really that don't stand up. They got it to the level where you could change just what batteries within uh, about a. A few minutes of uh, of downtime, so it would be eminently practical to have that at motorway service stations. But you would have this hugely expensive um, resource of all these extra. So if every car needed, in effect, another battery, you are doubling the price practically of something that is already very expensive in normal car terms. Now I have read your book. From cover
0: to cover. Oh. I do hope that all the people that... Um, I read it in two sittings. I find it absolutely fascinating. It's, um, it's fact-dense. That's not a criticism. Um, I took notes, and I found that when I'd finished, I'd taken more notes about your book than any other book that I've uh, read for interview purposes. And there, was some, there were just mind-blowing statistics, and I don't want to spoil people's enjoyment of the book, by, uh, by quoting those statistics here. But I just... Um, your quote about how much electricity the national grid would have to produce if we were all suddenly driving electric cars, how much electricity the national grid would have to generate to, to power those cars. In a way, saying, well, it's all very well electric cars, but they're going to have to be powered by electricity. And just now, in 2019... We don't generate in the UK anything like enough electricity for us all to drive electric cars.
1: My feeling was that we did not generate enough renewable electricity. I think we generate close to the requirement uh, for an, an electric car-driven society, providing it's managed extremely carefully. I think this is the the issue so that... Uh, oh, you were
0: saying it's like... I think the quote from the book was: um, "In the half-time of the World Cup final, when everybody gets up and makes a cup of tea, the national grid almost goes into meltdown because everybody wants electricity at the same time. The supply of electricity via the grid would have to be managed. But surely everyone's got used to plugging in their their, uh, their phone, their laptop, their tablet, whatever, their GPS overnight. If we if we just used nighttime electricity, would that be a?" would that be a better way of doing it? And how far off is the electric future if there is an electric future?
1: Um, Well, in terms of the electricity, I think it would be a case of managing the supply very carefully during the night. So whenever the electricity isn't used, it's going into your... It could be also, obviously, lower... Uh, electricity use periods during the day and it's down to some sort of clever management of, of the grid that would have to make that happen um, in terms of how far we are away from an electric future I suppose it depends how you define electric to some degree Whether it's bat- if you include hydrogen powered electric say in that, because they are still essentially, I mean you can burn hydrogen directly in internal combustion engines but it's not the most efficient way of doing it, it is much better to use a fuel cell and a, ba- and a battery pack usually a battery pack um, and uh, that uh, in terms of how far away from us of that being universal, I think we're still talking a, a decade or two. Yeah. Um, I was very disappointed <laughs> oh. <laughs> not, not by the book but to find out that wireless charging for electric cars doesn't really work, <laughs> I was looking forward to that, um, you can get relatively low but if you position your car very accurately and you've got a very slow rate of charge, it can work so it could, could be useful, particularly if you've got a bit of self-driving in the car and it helps to position it very accurately on the pad you'll get about 3 kilowatts or so into in, in, into the car but it, basically any, any air gap becomes more and more efficient, I think where it really unfortunately not work at the moment is the idea of that it's somehow magically there under the motorway so you can always be charging up as you drive along. I don't think there's currently I don't think there's any way of getting enough power into the car for that to work. Or indeed the complex switching um, mechanism you have to have to switch between one car and another as it goes over the, the pad at 70 miles an hour seventy miles an hour or so. The other thing I liked and um, I like many things about the book one of the other things that I liked is that
0: I know you as a genuine internal combustion enthusiast. Yes, I
1: mean, I love it. Um, you like cars that much? You want a Volkswagen Beetle? Do you still have that Beetle? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that is a, that's a contradiction in terms of so I've always, always had a love-hate related i still got it. I've actually rebuilt it recently. So, uh, with a lot of help, I mean, I was looking at other people rebuilding it, but it's still going very well. I still take it uh, um, take it for a treat for some uh, leaded petrol in the Cotswolds now and again, uh, which is it doesn't strictly need, because uh, they had a hardened valve seats for 66, but nevertheless, it's... Um, uh, it, uh it, it still goes well. I, I do still enjoy it. My wife always tells me I need a faster car as well. I'm not so sure I'd ever get around to using it, so I, I haven't at the moment. But you never know, things might change. I might go for another something more tactile as well. Yeah. What I was going to say, though, and thanks for the update on the Beetle, it was fairly comprehensive. <laughs> was the, question? <laughs> the question There
0: wasn't really a question. What I was going to yeah. say and get your reaction to it was, what you didn't do, which so many journalists of our generation do, is mourn about a self driving future and say that, you know, your, your take on the self driving future was it will be a lot better when um, our cars can do the laborious, tedious A to B driving and it will free us
1: up for the fun bit. Uh, yes, I think that, that, that could well be the case. So, the, the, yes, all the, and also, as an extension of that, it also frees up all the angst and guilt over resource use and pollution, in a sense, because if everybody's driving around in um, hydrogen and battery cars, uh, a minority of people can enjoy petrol cars without any fear of polluting the environment in any significant way or indeed depleting resources. It should be absolutely brilliant. It's always, the analogy for me is with silver photography because in the 80s and 90s everyone was worried that people were taking more and more and more photographs. We'd run out of silver, which of course a vital component for analogue photography. Then digital photography came along, people now taking more pictures than ever, but a thriving niche of analogue photography can exist and nobody has to worry about running out of silver. But, but cars are like that, but much, much more also really and, uh, and I think there's, I think uh, fortunately so far even politicians are having a fairly intelligent uh, response to the use of classic cars and, in, uh, in cities where um, anything over in continental Europe is about 30 years old in the UK 40 years old is exempt from all the u um, the and the uh, extra charges and so on and that, that, that's brilliant because they recognise that there's such a tiny proportion of total transport use that people can actually enjoy all these lovely old vehicles and you don't have to worry about the consequences it really not significant. And also, in that world, um, cars for transport will become uh, uh, become so clean, I, I think, that um, cars as a proportion of total pollution in cities will become really not significant. So people will start to pay attention to all the gas burners in restaurants, the wood-burning stoves, the candles, even all, all these other sources, construction, all these other sources of urban pollution. So I think the car will... if belatedly and eventually be, be let off this, this maximum you're um, doing the most damage sort of automatic assumption
0: i recently hosted um, an event here at the nec in birmingham that was held by it's it's almost a secret motoring event it's the body shop industry the people who repair and paint cars it is a multi-million pound industry here in the uk multi-billion of course across the world and as part of the show manufacturers will bring along the latest and greatest to warn the the car repair business what they're going to have to deal with And VW were there with the next generation of Q7s which have laser GPS radar and cameras uh, in order to make what level of autonomy because in the book you you go into considerable detail about autonomous or or self-driving cars what sort of level of autonomy do you think we're in cars we're actually going to see within the next five to ten years, John?
1: I think probably uh, very little, actually. In some really? respects, I, I I think there's going to be a lot of more accident avo- emphasis on accident avoidance rather than um, actual really taking control. Because I think uh, the, the bits in the areas of autonomy that are succeeding, I think are those exceedingly slow sort of pods that crawl around university campuses like a Johnny Cab in uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that sort of thing and also on racetracks I think where everything's under your control on the racetrack so you can actually have a, a, a driving tutor or, uh, in terms of uh, as an autonomous car autonomous car as driving tutor telling you how to drive better or something like that that, would, that, that all works but I think the artificial intelligence challenges of getting cars to be truly self driving on ordinary Roads, I, I think it's a very big test of artificial intelligence. and I'm not sure it'll, it'll actually get there. So I think there's, there's that issue, and then you say, "Oh, well, that's." So you're going to have a sort of halfway position where you can be autonomous quite a lot of the time, but then when the car can't cope, it signals it to, you and you have to get back in the control again. But I, I, <laughs> that is that is the oh that is the, the very worst case. Of what art. if you're playing Call of Duty where the car suddenly <laughs> says at 90 miles an hour? Yeah. Oh, by the way, you're driving now, pal. But that's it. That is exactly what what happens. I mean, it even happens at, with present cars with their lane guidance systems. You know, the corner can get too um, too steep, and if uh, if you're listening to the radio very loud you don't quite hear the bong that tells you it's no longer steering you round the uh, around that motorway junction, and uh, it just takes you a while to get back uh, in, in, into control. It is very serious, and I think that. That that is a, a serious issue with uh, with autonomy in terms of actually the vehicle repairers conferences. I mean, the, the, there is a potential problem in this the sheer calibration of all these systems is going to be quite a quite a repair challenge for them, which is not something I've gone into. But that's uh, that, that that is a, that clearly is an issue which needs to be solved. But I think I think actually what will happen is cars will become more connected without being more self driving. You will have more warning that something's going to hit you or is approaching you on the, the wrong side of a blind bend or somehow you are managed to link to the cameras of the car in front so you can see through it to see obstacles ahead. All those sort of things will happen, I think, with the emphasis of warning the driver to do something. But I think the driver really is going to have to still remain in control. So the idea that uh, you're going to be able to have your car pick you up from the pub um, um, having you indulged yourself fully in the local real nails or whatever is, uh, is not, I don't think really is going to happen anytime soon. I mean, it may happen eventually, and when it does, I think that's going to be brilliant. But uh, I think there's still some way off. Well, I think one of the things that came across in the book, which is called Autopia, and uh, it's a
0: fine publication, uh, avail- available from all good bookshops, John. Usual outlets, yes, it is. <laughs> Was um, the difficulties... In creating truly 21st century transportation, one of the problems with self-driving is it uses an enormous amount of computing power and electricity, which is perhaps one of the things. So if you create an electric car, but then you make it autonomous, if you, if you, if you take it to kind of level four or level five of self-driving autonomy, it's using
1: an enormous amount of electricity, which you're also using to power the car. Uh, yes, this does seem to be the case, and also it needs to also record an enormous amount of data in case of any problems later. Uh, not to mention the whole business of recording data to pass on to whoever's developing the car and developing the autonomous systems, because they want to improve those and to be self-learning. An awful lot of data, an awful lot of power consumption. And one of the, one of the other things that is pointed out, I mean,
0: get it, it's called Autopia, buy it, it's a great read, I read it in two cities. Um, the weight... Of cars. The the amazing statistic, an Austin 7 weighs 350 kilograms, and a new Golf weighs 1,350 kilograms. And it's essentially the same thing. It's a small family car. What difficulties does that bring to modern transportation, the future of personal transportation, the sheer
1: weight of vehicles? Well, I think in the future we should hopefully look towards that weight reducing, uh, um, both with uh, new materials, uh, use of composites, etc. I mean, McLaren are doing a lot of work in this area for ordinary cars as well as supercars in their their new centre. Um... Also, if they do become more accident-proof, hopefully we can uh, cut down on the, the sheer weight required for crash resistance. So, one would like to see that sort of thing. But on the counter-argument of that is if batteries remain very heavy and people demand longer ranges, then you've got a, an issue there. And that's why one of the main reasons why I think uh, in the future battery electric cars will still be mainly useful for short journeys and short commutes rather than very long-distance travel. I'm just going to have yeah. to... Uh,
0: Philadelphia, the <clears throat> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, they're going. <laughs> so we could just run over that, and then we could conclude, John, and then we could go, go about go our business. It's
1: a reasonable fact. I've got reasonable stuff in. reasonable. It's all coming. it's okay. Oh yeah, very much so. What, so if
0: I could just go over that thing, um, one of the most interesting and perhaps shocking uh, statistics from the book was the weight of um, a small passenger car an austin 7 weighed 350 kilograms a modern golf essentially the same car built to do the same job and aimed at the same sort of buyer 1350 kilograms what problems does the future of motoring face as cars get heavier and heavier and heavier
1: Um, Well, I I suppose there's a problem with, as cars get heavier, they create more pollution from other things like particles coming from the extra braking required from tyres and so forth. Um, That is an issue. Also, the sheer resource issue, and it's something that's a bit of a problem, particularly with battery electric vehicles, because the batteries remain heavy, and uh, the longer range you require, the heavier the batteries are. So that's clearly an issue. On the other hand, there are forces going in the other direction, I think. Um, As we get more um, connected cars, they'll become more... uh, able to detect collisions. Maybe we'll have uh, less need for crash resistance which means structures can be lighter. Also getting new developments in composite materials Uh, and McLaren are not doing this not only for supercars, they're doing this for ordinary cars in their their new centre near Sheffield and uh, hopefully that should um, create a force in the other direction as well. Will we own cars in the future, John, or will we rent them or borrow them or share them? I, I, I... Again, I think it's going to get more diverse. I think there will be a case where you rent cars of different types at different stages of your life for different purposes. You subscribe to a service that... Will happen, but at the same time, I think there will still be forces of pride, of ownership, and convenience of having your own car. It may ultimately turn into a sort of urban versus rural thing. The people in the in the in more rural areas want a car of their own because it's available all the time. It's it's inefficient to have car, a car sharing system. Um, whereas whereas in towns, may people may gradually reduce their desire for for, for car ownership. I, it's, it's it's interesting. I I think there is still a personal attachment between a person and a machine, and that does still bias this towards something you own rather than something you merely lease, particularly on a very short-term basis. Mm. Um, We've seen various
0: nations dominate um, the car industry or lead the car industry, if you will, even in our lifetime, perhaps post-war America, then the rise of Japan, uh, Korea, um, then maybe a swing back to Europe. We see the resurgence of Detroit now, Detroit making some of the most interesting cars it's made in decades. Who do you think will dominate? Is it China? Is it China in the future, John?
1: Well, I think in pure numerical terms, it it would appear to be China at the moment. I mean, it's already in a leading uh, position. Uh, But... uh, uh, and, and it'll be very interesting to see how that develops, because they'll obviously need their own brands, they need their own market presences, their own styles. It could be a, a, a massive unleashment uh, of creativity. Um, but on the other hand, I think also there may be a revival of small-scale manufacturing and, and with, new t- with almost the, the skateboard battery chassis it allows endless permutations to be built on top of it. It's not inconceivable that you could, um, sort of, your new car could be something you sketch on an iPad with a designer, and a few weeks later it's produced. Uh, by new manufacturing methods, individual bespoke 3D printing methods or whatever and, and you get that car delivered to your own specifications so it could be uh, it, it, there could be a future where the traditional view of car manufacturing as a, a nation based thing loses some of that identity, I mean you already see it with some of the car designers of the uh, world, world leading car design course at the Royal College of Art in London they design their things and their, their, their wonderful creations and their programs, they send them off to China to be 3D printed and they come back, so it's almost a globalisation of the car production process where location may become less important. I think um, your book is about cars,
0: it's also about ideas, and you met a panoply of of amazing individuals Who, who, who were you most excited or most who did you come away from thinking there is a truly original thinker, there is someone who is not... <laughs> you he 's trying to avoid the question <laughs> yeah, but I, I just thought you met so many incredible people from from people who were who are involved in motor racing to people who are who are trying to solve issues of power supply or safety or usage or infrastructure when it comes to transport but and, and such a such a diverse group of i don 't think i 've Read a book where such, as I say, such a diverse group of people were brought together to speak or to comment upon the subject of personal transportation. And I just wondered if there was, if you, if you, if you met someone and thought, that guy, that guy's the next Ferdinand Porsche or the next Henry Ford or the next Gijaro. There was, there was a person who you thought, that guy's going to change the world, or that woman's going to change the world.
1: That, I, that, I, that is such a difficult question. I'm not trying to be able to answer that any more than the question of your favourite car or your favourite gadget. Because you always you always end up wanting that want, wanting the lot, don't you? Really? I mean, in the sense that you you can never choose between uh, I don't know a, a wonderful. Um, um, <laughs> you know, I'll choose your Lotus Elise, Porsche Cayman, or Renault Alpine, or, or indeed a, a a classic Rover, or a, I don't know a Fraser Nash. I mean, it's absolutely impossible. <laughs> you just want them all, really. And uh, and I think it's great to have. Um, I, I, it's hard to single out a, any individual. I think I know that's, that's a cop out in a way, but I think it's probably the truth. Well, you finally you just
0: um, your book was such a wide spectrum of ideas and and uh, ideologies and and kind of philosophies. That's not too pretentious. In in terms of the future of mortaring, surely to goodness, writing this book made you want to write about a dozen other books. So what, what's the, what's the, which, because, because you, you covered, you covered power supply, design, safety, you covered all, which direction will the next book go in one particular direction? In other words, I'm saying to you, which, which of those subjects did you find most fascinating? I thought, I, I have to say, I found,
1: I, I really enjoyed the book, but I found the bit about autonomous self-driving Particularly fascinating. Ah! Oh gosh! Well, I, I mean, I, I again, I sort of found it all fascinating. I mean, the other book I was tempted to write was how we can how we can improve the user experience of technology. But by um, well, actually, I phrase it slightly more rudely to the publisher when I, I said. But uh, that they, they were more, they thought cars were more interesting. And I, I in terms of which of those subjects is most interesting? It's Again, I, can't, I find it very hard to be drawn. I know that's, uh, that's, that, 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 that's a bit of a cop-out. I really do. did in, genuinely enjoy finding out about all of them. And, um, with e- I mean, including motorsport, the sort of whether that becomes more electrified, that, whether that has, a, has its own environmental pressures and things. Uh, isn't, there, isn't there a huge problem, though, John, with electric motor racing? The sound. There's no sound. Uh, yes, I think that is a problem. And uh, it is... Uh, and it will ensure that. And again, because it's again such a minority sport, a sport it will be allowed to continue. To, you, you do want the roaring V eights going around the round the ovals. You do want the uh, the, abs, the absolutely um, dedicated to performance Formula One engine making. It's not. You really do. You need that. that I, well,
0: I was with you. I, I'm not gonna go away. I don't think that the that Formula One is a particularly good noise. I think somebody in your in in the book said it was like a kick in the nuts.
1: And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's... Okay. It's all right. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. Well, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, having said that, I mean, the um, the Volkswagen IDR going up Pike's Peak was actually quite a quite an arresting noise in itself. So we may just, again, um, start to appreciate a, a huge diversity of sounds that these new machines
0: create. Yeah, because we're going to be dead soon. So young people might, you know, we might thrill to the roar of a Maserati 250F or Mike Halewood's six-cylinder Honda race bike but they might like the swoosh of of an electric race car, so you never know. You're listening to Steve's Speed Shop. Did you know that the very first meeting of Sir Alex Isigonis, the designer of the iconic Mini, the Austin Mini, and John Cooper, the man who made the Mini win at Monte Carlo and in the showroom, was at the world's oldest speed event, the Brighton Speed Trials. The two of them turned up in machinery that was so odd, so innovative and so weird that the organisers decided that the only people that they could actually race was each other. that's just one of the stories that comes out of Peter Grimsdale's new book, High Performance, When Britain Ruled the Roads. I really enjoyed talking to Peter. It's a great book.
2: Yeah, so... High Performance, When Britain Ruled the Roads. Um, it's a book uh, that's been kind of gestating in my head for probably at least half a century, I'd say. Um, I mean, I've, I've been fascinated by cars since before I could think, really. And, um, you know, over the years, in my various other activities, I've wondered about writing about cars.
0: Um, mm.
2: But um, it really... Um, what happened, basically, was one of my childhood friends had read some of my thrillers. And he said, yeah, well, I quite like these, but when are you going to write a book about cars? You know so much about cars. I said, well, I didn't know that much. You know, "Mm, yeah, well, you know, anyway. So one thing led to another, and then I came up with an idea. Um, And really what the idea was, was to look at the period of British cars from 1945 to the end of the 60s, which for me, and I think for a lot of other people, is a golden age. Of British motor cars. I wanted to answer some questions. And one of the questions was how come before the Second World War, Britain had no profile at the top level of motorsport? We, we had no presence in Grand Prix. And how come you know, a British car had won a Grand Prix and, uh, since the uh, early 20s? Uh, Henry Seagrave and Sunbeam. And yet, but by the 1960s, Britain practically kind of owned Formula One. I mean, not only did it dominate, it had already completely redesigned the Formula One racing car. And I wanted to try and find out why exactly that had happened.
0: The people, obviously. Your book brilliantly brings to life these people that I also have spent a great uh, portion of my life being obsessed with. People like John Cooper, people like Colin Chapman. But also people that... You noticed, and I found some fascinating information about people who were kind of on the periphery of yeah. the, the motor industry. And I'm thinking of people like Lady Docker and Sir Stafford yeah. Cripps, yes. um, a yes. little, a little bit obsessed with. <laughs> and well, I think he's the, I think he's one of the most important. British politicians who was never Prime Minister. I mean, I, I used to... Oh, I used no to, question. Yeah, I used to host a News and Current Affairs show, and, and somebody asked mm. me that question, and straight away I said, oh, Sir Stafford Cripps is easily... Like, in the same way that Sir Sterling Moss is the greatest driver never to have been Formula One champion, yes, Sir yes. Stafford Cripps is the greatest British politician never to have been Prime Minister. He's a really interesting man.
2: I mean, I could have written a whole book about him. Well, why
0: don't you? Because I'd, I'd <laughs> buy it, and I'd read it. I became interested in him because on the way to that job, on the South Bank in London, I would sometimes stop at a cafe and I found out it was where he would go every day because he liked to listen to working people's conversations. Extraordinary. Because he thought it gave him an insight that gave him an advantage on his political colleagues and opponents. Yeah. Of course, without his export-or-die... Uh, call to arms, mm. um, then then perhaps that well not perhaps that dominance of, of, uh, of British motor racing in the world wouldn't have happened. And there's another coincidence that I came across in your book. I used to live very close to the where Colin Chapman built his very first car. Mm. In is it Hornsey Road? I think it was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's the I first car that was built yeah. at the back of his father's pub. Yeah. And again, I thought, mm. as I rode past it or drove past it, mm. I'd think, wow, you know, because I've been to Marinello and it's all very impressive. Mm. I've been to Ferrari, I've been mm. to Lamborghini, I've been to Bentley and all this, but you think Lotus, which is... I mean, I remember being in, um, in Palm Springs, California, and they had a car show, and they asked me to be one of the judges because they heard I was in town. My partner has a house there, and there was a Lotus Elite... And hardly anybody, hardly anybody knew what it was. And and I said, this is a, they thought it was, they thought it was funny. They thought it was that, like, almost like a toy or, or a, and I was thinking, you have no idea. This car is, it's the first monocoque. It's the first, it would run rings around any of these Detroit built. Dinosaurs that you lot were <laughs> turning out at the time. Colin Chapman yeah. was a bloody genius. What's r- I think it's yeah. I think that afterwards somebody said, "Where's that rude British guy?" Because I got a bit, you know, <laughs> how dare you cast aspersions? Because as you say, in your, I mean, you know, I don't know if I've ever. I had an argument with a writer, A. A. Gill, about this. He said, um, he said. The auto industry has never turned out a, a true genius, and I said, I, I almost punched him. I thought, yeah, I can, I can list two dozen G- mm. genuine mm. people like Isigonis, who, who's a, yes. a big part of your book, and, a, a, and again, somebody I find endlessly fascinating.
2: Mm. Mm. Oh, quite an extraordinary man, and, and let's not forget a teenage migrant from Turkey off the boat in the 1920s. You know that's how he. That's how we ended up with our greatest, probably our greatest automotive engineer.
0: And yeah, and yeah, and and here's why I found your book. So I've read a lot of books about cars and motorbikes, and some of them have been drier than the Gobi Desert. I mean, just lists of people mm. and and production figures and mm-hmm. sales and stuff like that. Mm. But one of the things that your book really brought home to me was that if you were somebody like Alexis Igonis and you were a teenage immigrant mm. you could mm. go on a holiday with Princess Margaret <laughs> you know or you, was, or you could be friends he, with Lord Snowden and stuff like that it was, he, you, he, it was very
2: interesting I think one of the things that was a bit of an entree for him was that he um, when he was a kid in uh, Smyrna which uh, then was part of Greece, his father was from Greece and his mother was Bavarian but he had English uh, he was homeschooled by English uh, British uh, tutors. So when he arrived in Britain, he'd never been here before, but he spoke he spoke very good British English, very good um, sort of upper crust English. Mm. It enabled him to kind of get along get along with those people um, quite easily. And he had just a lot of he just had a lot of jar, tra, charm and a lot of drive. But going back to the point you made about the books, I mean, you know, my bookshelves are full of. Books about cars that people might describe as dry, and you know that is one one. So one half of the brain just wants all the information. But for me, what I wanted to do was try and write a book that would appeal to the passingly interested. You know, not sort of super nerds like me, but people. You know, my mates and friends who are quite interested in cars, quite interested in history as
0: well. Well, you turned it into what like, you've turned the post-war British car industry into an epic drama full of these eccentric, fascinating characters who were deeply flawed as well as being deeply talented. And, um, and I, I didn't know you from Adam, If you, it, I'm sorry, but I didn't. And as soon as I looked you up and realised that you spent your life you know, entertaining people with, with fiction, I thought, this is why. This is why this guy's managed to write possibly the most interesting car book i've read in many 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 a year because you wanted to keep people reading so that you could tell them about people like leonard lord and cecil kimber and yes. john cooper
2: yes yes I mean, i've always been fascinated by these guys i had an amazing piece of luck because um, i worked in television and i still do a bit um but in 1982 i was at the BBC. And I got to work as a researcher on a huge BBC history of British industry called All Our Working Lives. And I got to work on the one about the car industry. And I didn't know much about car manufacturing then, but I did learn a lot about how the industry itself worked. And that's how I came across, initially came across people like Leonard Lord, you know, who who, who are not famous for, you know, design or anything like that, but were production geniuses. Now, I've always been fascinated by those characters because, you know, they, they, made, they made the industry work the way it did on its good days.
0: I think um, it's great that you've written the book. One of the reasons is because looking at the old Pathé Newsreel footage or looking at a black-and-white photo mm. of some men in, in tweed wearing brogues, everyone's smoking, everyone has a moustache, you might think that these were men cut from a similar cloth but having read your book i can't imagine anyone more different than sir william lyons and leonard lord they were were utterly different men if you looked at them they'd go yeah they are the management class they are Mm. they are captains Mm. of industry as the phrase used to be and yet what comes across in your book is how different all these men. And apart from La- Nori Nora Docker, Lady Docker, they are all men. How mm. different or Pat Moss possibly, but how different all of these men were. Some of them had an artistic bent, they were they yeah. loved animals, they they, they had a, a wide social circle, they, they painted yeah. in their spare time. And some of them were just horrible bullies <laughs> who got the <laughs> who got the job done and yes. then went home to kick the cat. Yeah, like, but yeah. you, you've brought them to life, I think.
2: Well, some of, the, some of them are a bit of both as well. I mean, you mentioned William Lyons. I mean, William Lyons, I, I mean, I've always, always admired William Lyons because of Jaguar. But it was when only really when I started to write the book. And I had an extraordinary piece of good fortune because I met uh, William Lyons' grandson. Michael uh, Quinn. Michael Quinn, yeah, yeah, who happened to have the unpublished memoir that Lyons started oh, to write. Amazing. And then he got bored. It it's only a few years, but I was able to read that and really get a kind of, you know, just a sense of him as a character. But what's so extraordinary about him was that he was, he was chief executive of arguably Britain's most successful, certainly most profitable uh, car company uh, in that period, but was also arguably our best stylist because he started out, you know, drawing... Sidecars, motorcycle sidecars. His first business was building sidecars, and then he progressed to bodies, in and then gradually, yes, in Blackpool, and gradually, gradually, built a whole car. And when you, it's, it's amazing to think that the first, the first of his cars, the first engine he ever built was the XK engine, and he built it <laughs> to put in a big saloon car. It just happened to be capable of winning Le Mans.
0: He's like the, the Miles Davis of cars of, of because I remember that somebody said to me that Miles Davis, he met him and he, he said he seemed, a, he seemed a thoroughly depressed and world weary 23 year old. <laughs> and, he, and he said, So I asked him, I said, I can't remember who this was. It was Gil Evans or somebody or some mm-hmm. Ranger or something. Yeah. He, said, Why? he said, I've done my best work. And you mm-hmm. just thought, Wow. Yeah. And I mean, if your first engine was the XK, mm-hmm. where, yeah. where'd, where'd yeah. you go from there?
2: Well, interestingly, I mean, Lyons. Lyons never really involved himself in in the in the, in the engineering. He never he never made any any pretence. You know, he just get the best people around them. But when they were designing the XK engine, he said, "I want a twin cam. I want twin overhead cams." And he, he looked and said, "You know, that's very complicated. I mean, you know, that's sort of what, Italian. You know, are you sure about this?" He said, "Absolutely." Because it looks good when you open the bonnet, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like he had that thought. But but interesting thing you say about um, Miles Davis having all his w- best work done behind behind him when he was twenty five. Lyons considered his best work to have been the XJ6, which was the last car he styled, and he styled in his sixties. And I can see why he thinks it is. Well, it's I, damn good style.
0: I, I think that any man who has the XK120, the Mark Ten the mm. XJ6, the the XKE, as our American listeners would, yep. would call it, yep. or the E-Type, as we'd call mm. it. Mm. I don't think there are too many that can, can stand with him when you've got right. that sort of background. I went right. to um, I went to look at a collection last week here in Lancashire, uh, where Sir William was from. Not far at all from yeah. where, where he started mm. out. And in this room, in this large room, there was a Veyron, a Lamborghini Aventador, um, the new Aston Martin, the very newest Aston Martin, Mm. Uh, all kinds of amazing cars mm-hmm. and a, a black XK120 with the spats on the back wheels and a red yeah. leather interior. And I said to the guy, that's the best look- looking car mm. in mm. this room. And he said, correct, mm. correct. Mm. That's what the guy who mm. owned all those cars and like mm. high-fived me because I'd walked mm-hmm. past all these hyper cars, gone yep. to the XK120 and gone, yep. that's the best mm. looking car in mm. here. And he went, yes. Mm.
2: Well, there's a lot of, there's such simplicity to his designs, you know, that, that there's a purity to the to the XK120 that's extraordinary.
0: It's a very simple, very simple. Is the story of the British motor trade that if you are risk averse, that you may survive, if you take risks, if you are W.O. Bentley or you are mm-hmm. Colin Chapman, mm. then it will all end in tears. If you single-mindedly and obsessively pursue success on the track, then the road car business will crash and burn in flames
2: it's very hard to do both really well um i mean ferrari who was the model really only uh built road cars to pay for his uh race cars Hmm. and that didn't really that didn't really work as a business model which is why in the end he had to he had to uh, go in with fiat um and and why you know henry ford as we now know Uh, tried tried to buy Ferrari, which is what Le Mans 66 is all about. But um, the the Jaguar, I mean, Lyons was very clear that if we go racing, it's very high risk. If we go racing, it's simply to make headlines and sell cars. And um, as soon as he'd won four, because Jaguar carried on winning Le Mans uh, in the 50s, after he pulled out because a cost won the last, uh, yeah. details won the last one. As soon as he won, won, won four Lamars, I think it was, he said, Right, that's enough. Okay, we'll pause on that. <laughs> you know, so he had a very clear, quite ruthless idea. I think it's very hard to succeed at both. And Ch- Colin Chapman had a jolly good go at it, but it was, it was, it was hard going, hard going. They're two such different businesses.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't know, I didn't know about, I, I don't know why I didn't, but I didn't know about Ses- how Cecil Kimber's tragic ending. I had to stop. Oh. I had to mm. stop reading because mm. I just I've got such a soft spot for MG, and mm. the, uh, th- there is an argument that Cecil Kimber invented the sports car. And when I say the sports car, I mean the british definition of a sports car not a not a fast not a necessarily super fast racing car but that that idea of an open top two seater that was affordable that probably had a small engine and lightweight and would take a young pipe-smoking man who played a bit of Mm. golf and tennis to work during the week, and then Mm -hmm. either to the beach with someone he was courting or off to a a bit of Clubman Motorsport. Mm. That Mm. idea, that very British idea of a sports car, it was his idea. And he never really lived to see... The success of that, is, which is really well described in your book, of how British sports cars conquered the American market.
2: Well, I was really curious as to know what the story was behind that. Because you know, if you look at photographs of uh, sports car racing in America in the 50s, they're all on these big airfields, and they're all, they're all MGs. I mean, there's loads of MGs. There's, a, there's other cars. but my, and, and then you look at American histories of American racing drivers... It always starts with an MG, Carroll, Shelby, Dodge, all those people. Or Yeah, they hmm. all started in an MG. So, like, how did this happen? Because the MGTC is, on the, on the face of it, the most unsuitable car for, America, for the American market. But when Shell Cavalli, the American who discovered the MGTC, saw it, when he took one look at it, he wasn't looking at a car. He was looking at a four-wheel motorbike. He was looking at yeah. a, a machine that you could sit beside whoever you were taking for a ride as opposed to having them behind you. you know, it was some, something that you could, you could just enjoy at, a different, at a, a different level. But from a motorbike, he'd gone to New Orleans that day. That day he saw the MGTC, he'd gone to New Orleans to see about uh, finding some bikes that he could sell. Mm-hmm. And that's how it starts. And he, he said, I can sell this car. And so he took a few back to California, and he sold them that weekend and ordered 50 more. And by the, by 1950, he was America's biggest importer of British cars.
0: I can't think... You've, you've talked about your background in television. I can't think... And I've worked in TV since the early 90s, of an idea that would get less traction with television companies in the UK than mm. to turn your fantastic book and i have to say it is fantastic i massively enjoyed reading it it's it's a real page turner and it's it's right in my sweet spot it's who are the people behind these machines Mm. because the machines Mm. are interesting but the people are fascinating well Nora
2: doctor's an amazing lady she she was extraordinary i mean she she was out of time out out of time really because she she was she she had her best years at the height of British austerity, post-war austerity. Um, and she knew that everybody was just fed up, fed up of everything being so grey. And she just wanted to, you know, just just really, really glitz things up a bit. And it really got up the noses of the establishment. But boy, did everybody else like it, you know?
0: Yeah. It's... There's... One of the things that you don't... Well, you can't talk about everything. There simply wouldn't be t- time or space, and people mm. people perhaps wouldn't want to read into too much detail, but I, as as interested as I am in the British car industry post-war, I'm also fascinated by the British motorcycle industry because motorcycles yes. are, are my passion. Yes. And I see this... I see a similar problem, but... When I've talked to the guys, as you've talked to the guys, and I I have talked to a lot of the guys who are in the car industry, but perhaps more who were involved with Triumph and BSA and Norton mm-hmm. and Royal Enfield and the huge success that they had after the war mm-hmm. and then obviously it all goes bad in the 70s. And I'm sure mm-hmm. you'll be, your next book will be about how this mm-hmm. all, all turns sour and why. Mm-hmm. And there are, of course, various reasons. One of the reasons they've said to me was that the way British, they said you have to forget the machine and instead look at, British business and the way British business works
2: mm.
0: and the way that shareholders demand a dividend every year. Mm. Mm. Now, hero Honda didn't have to go to his shareholders mm. <laughs> and say, Shall yeah. we invest in new machinery and, and mm. build a new motorcycle? Yeah. Or shall we pay you your dividend? And that was mm. always the problem, wasn't it? Every yes. year the shareholders wanted their divvy, and if they didn't mm. damn well get it, they like they did with Bernard Docker at uh, mm-hmm. at, at BSA. They mm-hmm. get rid yeah. of you, and Daimler. They yeah. get rid of you.
2: They did, yes, they did indeed. But I think they, you know. I think one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why I think Britain got good at Formula One, at motor racing after the war, was because we, we were good at constant innovation, mm. keeping and changing and improve, change and improve. That doesn't work. Try this. That doesn't work. We'll move on to this. Constantly kind of reinventing and rethinking things in a way that is just not in the industrial psyche perhaps of Europeans, but when it comes to manufacturing something in big numbers, we were never that great at that that production engineering side. Leonard Lord was a great production engineer; he reorganized Morris and he you know he really modernized. Austin Longbridge, you know, Longbridge was the most modern plant in the world in the early fifties. Wow, hard but, to imagine.
0: But he, hard but to he, imagine. He went to. Did he copy it from the Americans? He, he went to well, Detroit. I think obviously. everybody
2: everybody copied everybody because it's, yeah. you know that's the nature of lots of industries. Um, but he just he just made production engineering a priority, and for a lot of design, I mean, someone like William Lyons. Was not that interested in production engineering, you know he wasn't he wasn't looking in that direction. The Japanese were all about production engineering yeah I mean the whole revolution that Toyota caused was was literally it starts with how they organized the men, the, the men and the women around the machines and it goes from there
0: i um I got to Goodwood to the revival mm-hmm. and to other events um, mm. in this country mm. and I will be honest, I find that a celebration of the pre-war stuff, the Fraser Nashes and the Bentleys, Mm. it's not that I don't like the machinery, Mm. but to me it's a hankering for an era when Mm. motorsport was the preserve of the wealthy and the entitled. Mm. Mm. And as as a lad from Bury Lancashire brought brought up in a terraced house, I Mm. I can't celebrate that era. But mm. I can... Because I wouldn't have been allowed it. The only way I would have been allowed near the car it was to keep an eye on it for his lordship. Yeah. You know. But well, this, post, this post-war period mm. that's, that you celebrate in your mm. book, yeah. whether you were designing cars, whether you were building cars, whether you were selling cars or you were racing cars, it was a meritocracy. Nobody mm. really oh, cared where you, came, where you came from, what accent you had. Yeah. It was, are, are, do you have ability... If you had ability yeah. like the Cigone, you could arrive yeah. in Britain as, as an immigrant, mm. and you could be literally rubbing shoulders yeah. with royalty, mm. purely based on on ability. I
2: mean, John Cooper's a really good example of that. You know, his dad had a garage. His dad had worked done you know been been mechanic for various people at Brooklands, but they'd never got a look in on actual racing. You know, and Cooper, John Cooper after the war, Colin Chapman the same. I mean, he had got, yeah, he did go to university, but you know, he was a, his dad, his dad owned a pub. But the one person that stands out for me against all this is Wally Hassan. Now Wally Hassan joined Bentley, joined, hired by W.O. Bentley, age 15, as a sort of office boy. Okay? Well, by the time he'd finished his life, he'd had a hand in designing the XK engine. And he had a hand in designing the twelve-cylinder um, uh, Jag as well. But not only that, he designed the Coventry Climax fire pump engine that became the the engine that powered um, Lotus and Cooper to victory. I mean, what an achievement! Completely self-made, self-taught guy. Yeah. So you're right about the people who, before the war, you it was a rich it was a rich man's sport and women's sport. Quite a lot of women raced yeah. at uh, Brooklands. After the war, that all changes. But there's a lot of people working away in the back (laughs) in the 20s and 30s, the people like Wally Hassan, who, you know, after the war had their moment. It's very interesting. It's it's, it's very interesting to look at British history of that century just through the lens of the car industry because it shows up so
0: many things just just finally peter and, and again I'm, I'm i must uh, thank you for writing the book because um, well thank you for reading it, yeah, but it was a pleasure like i said i've, I've i read a lot of very dry books about motorcycles and motor cars because mm-hmm. I, I want the information yeah, I, just, me too. I just i just Tell want the thing. information, and I just say God, oh, this is hard work but, <laughs> but yours gave me the and and the information, and like I say, it made it seem like it was an epic story it was almost it was almost tolkien-esque in sort of Mm. all these different wildly different people all working Mm. away with Mm. kind of the same aim because there was a lot of there was a lot of patriotism across the board there were a lot of people who wanted who wanted to make money but there were a lot of people who were like yeah we're doing this we're doing this to make money but we're also doing it for Mm. britain because you know we we've got a reason but um I was just—I was just going to ask you about. Oh, sorry, i completely lost my thread there. So we'll, <laughs> we'll have to edit, no, we'll have, we'll have to edit we'll have to edit this bit because there was a specific <laughs> question that I wanted to ask you, and it was about. Um, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Um, again, I'll talk about motorcycles because it's mm-hmm. it, it's what yeah. I know best, and for me, the probably the standout um, individual. Mm. Many great men in the British motorcycle mm. industry was Edward Turner. Now, obviously, he oh, had a, yes. he had a hand in cars because yes. he designed the V8 that was in the the Demler Dart, what we call yes. the Demler Dart, what Americans Fantastic call it, engine. the SP two hundred and fifty. It was, mm. but I think talking, not just reading about Edward Turner, but talking to people who knew him, and worked with him, and mm. um, the sadness of of Edward Turner it was a man who was incredibly open minded and mm. free thinking mm. became as he got older. More and more conservative. And if you want to look for a reason why in his later life he didn't he couldn't replicate the successes of a younger man, it's not hard to lay the blame there with that encroaching conservatism that that yeah. stops him from taking risks and being bold. Yeah. I mean yeah. the guy that did the, the Dale La the guy that did the Triumph Speed Twin, the guy who mm. said, Yeah, the working man can have a red motorbike with chrome mm. plating that does mm. eighty five miles an hour, mm. but then thirty years later he's the guy going, No, no, you can't give a working man more yeah. than two cylinders. It'll be too yeah. complicated. Yeah. He'll be frightened. And mm. and, and, and you know do, and I, I was going to say, did you find that with these great men, did Isagonis, did Sir William Light, well, or, well, or not, Was did well, they get if, more conservative as they got older? The,
2: the interesting thing is that you've, you've mentioned too, I mean, in a way, Isagonis' genius was in his kind of control over the design, and Isagonis' downfall, ultimately, was his iron grip on the design. I mean, he was... He was one of that generation who celebrated kind of utilitarianism. He hated any adornment, any frippery. I mean, he had an argument even just about the chrome surrounds of the Mini Cooper doors. I'm not having that. You know, he was absolutely, he, he loved very, very utilitarian design. And ultimately, you know, the Austin 1800s and the Austin Maxi, you know, they were up against the Cortina Mark III, with all its bells and whistles on, you know. And time had moved on. If, uh, uh, William Lyons, opposite, never lost a sense of style. He just felt that style sold. And what his aim was was to keep up with it. Now, he didn't actually design the original original design of the E-Type. It came from Malcolm Sayer, his aerodynamicist. And he wasn't too keen on the idea of it as a road car to start with. But eventually, eventually he thought, yeah, yeah, okay. We'll give this a go. What I'll do is I'll add a few small adornments to it, like those lovely little thin bumpers, and we'll make it work. Mm. And so he had he had the ability to go, yeah, I wouldn't have designed it that way, but I'm going to go with it because I think it's right. Well,
0: it so does. He could absorb
2: new he could absorb new ideas, and I think that's the thing: is to be able to. God, we all suffer from this as we advance through our years. Is 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 the danger of becoming set in one's ways. You know, say, well, when I, was a, when I was young, we did it this way, so we're probably not going to do it this way now. Yeah. You know, that's the big danger.
0: Well, that's it for another episode of Steve Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. See you next week. Don't be late.